Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Welcome to the Mile High City, where marijuana, long a symbol of the counterculture, now is just a part of everyday culture. It's a Thursday night in downtown Denver, and we were invited to a marijuana food and wine pairing catering to young professionals. You might expect to see the band toking up, but here, everybody is. Denver is the epicenter of a marijuana industry that's now in full bloom. This is not somebody's backyard. This is industrial agriculture. Absolutely. Superstorm Sandy killed 117 people and caused more than $60 billion worth of damage in 2012. And thousands of families that survived Sandy say they've been hit by a second wave of fraud. I was like, how can you tell me that you can't cover this, that I'm not going to get the full amount of my insurance? I said, you never, I said, you got my payments every month. Tonight, an investigation into why so many families didn't get the help they deserved and what's being done about it. So we're going to make it right? Very few actors have ever had a year like the one Bradley Cooper is having. Bradley, hi. In Hollywood, there was all the hoopla for his third Oscar nomination in as many years for his performance in American Sniper. She's got a grenade. She's got an RKG Russian grenade. Across the continent in New York, he was the toast of Broadway in The Elephant Man, where his life is a little simpler. No paparazzi? People don't bug you? No, they get, they get me on the way from, from where I live to the, to the subway station. But for some reason, they don't want to spend the 250 and ride the subway with me. <laughs> so I lose them in the subway. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. 
like this podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Plus, you'll even get special postage discounts with Stamps.com you can't get at the post office. Right now, use the promo code 60MINUTES for this special offer. A no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 60MINUTES. That's Stamps.com, and be sure to enter the promo code 60MINUTES. Visit Colorado these days and you can smell change in the air. It's the scent of legal marijuana for recreational use. If you're a resident, 21 or older, you can walk into a state-licensed store and buy up to an ounce of pot. Tourists are limited to a quarter ounce. Colorado has allowed medical marijuana since 2001, but in 2012, voters amended the state constitution to allow recreational pot, and gave the government one year to make it work. Colorado's governor calls it the most ambitious social experiment of the 21st century. Three other states also have approved recreational sales, but as we first reported in January, none has gone further or faster into the legal retail weed business than Colorado. We wanted to know how the experiment is going, so we headed to Denver the epicenter of a marijuana industry that's now in full bloom. Welcome to the Mile High City, where marijuana, long a symbol of the counterculture, now is just a part of everyday culture. It's a Thursday night in downtown Denver, and we were invited to a marijuana food and wine pairing catering to young professionals. You might expect to see the band toking up... But here, everybody is. The food is sprinkled with marijuana. The wine infused with a strain called Killer Queen. Bud tender Leo Deneve selected it for the evening. Because of the mellowness of the strain, there isn't any kind of anxiety attached to it. So that's why we have such a crowd of uh, happy and fantastic people. And what we're doing there with that machine is uh, it creates smoke that is cooled to minus 10 degrees. And that smoke is then blown into this glass. And that allows the wine to open up and really bring in the fruit-forward qualities of it. Those who might remember pot from the 70s, the marijuana grown and sold in Colorado today is up to 10 times stronger. There's a healthy appetite for the Rocky Mountain High and no shortage of stores to supply the demand. There's the corner store in Denver. 173 even. A high-end boutique in Aspen, right around the corner from Prada and Gucci. Colorado has licensed more than 300 recreational dispensaries, ringing up $303 million in sales last year, $52 million in tax revenue. This is a lot of pot. This is industrial scale. How many rooms like this do you have? Uh, When we're fully finished with our construction, we'll have 12 like this. Meg Sanders is a new breed of cannabis CEO, driven to push marijuana into the mainstream. 
a suburban mother of two, she left a private equity firm to run Mindful, a chain of four retail stores that sells recreational and medicinal pot. All of this is legal. That's just mind-blowing. It is. Meg, did you ever think you would be here doing this? No, never in a million years. I was working in a, in a small financial office, and it just wasn't a lot of upward growth. And what better opportunity than to jump into a fledgling industry, um, something that we'll never see again in our lifetime. Her 44,000-square-foot marijuana factory is cutting edge. Automated water and nutrient systems feed the plants. Lighting mimics the seasons so plants can be harvested year-round. All this in a warehouse right across the street from a Denver police station. Sixty mindful employees cultivate, trim, and package up to 500 pounds of marijuana every month. This is not somebody's backyard. This is not some stoner's basement. This is a big business. This is industrial agriculture. Absolutely. Commercial, commercial grow right here. All of this still is illegal at the federal level. The Justice Department is watching closely. The feds say they won't intervene as long as Colorado's recreational pot doesn't fall into the hands of kids or criminals or cross state lines. With marijuana's growing acceptance in Colorado, Sanders says she's comfortable as a cannabis capitalist. I have a massive engineering feat for you. Her 24-year-old son, Elijah, works with her at Mindful. She says parents at her daughter's middle school seem more curious than critical of her business. Do you have any concerns that your job is sending the wrong signal to your 13-year-old daughter? I'm not concerned about that. At all? I'm not. Um, this, this isn't carte blanche oh, because I work here, everybody should have access to it, and that includes her. We have very good conversations about it. She knows. She knows. I mean, you say you're a business person. I think some parents would look at this and say, she's just peddling drugs. I can tell you that the drug dealer, illegal drug dealer on the corner in any state in this nation isn't carding isn't checking your ID, isn't making sure you have a medical marijuana card or you're over 21. This industry does it every day. The stats show it. We've done a phenomenal job. Mindful expects to rake in $18 million this year, but it's not easy money. Colorado requires every plant grown by a licensed operator to be tracked from seed to sale. Each one has a barcoded radio frequency ID tag and is logged into a statewide database. Cameras watch it all. The goal is to keep every bud and bid off the black market. Greenwood Village Police Chief John Jackson isn't sold. Law enforcement is really trying to do the right thing here. It's different, and it's requiring a mind change or shift on our part. Jackson is president of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police. He says there's still illegal pot on the streets from underground dealers who don't have to levy 28% in state taxes. There's a common belief that by legalizing it, you will get rid of the black market. I can resoundingly say that the black market is alive and doing well. It's still cheaper to buy it from the, the dealer on the street than to buy it in the store. Certainly. You know, we've created an entire industry here, and I'm going to be honest with you. There are some very responsible people that are involved. And it's like anything else in society. 
you've got a few people that are really making it hard for the others and maybe use Colorado as a platform to simply provide their marijuana to the rest of the country. This is what he's talking about. In October, Denver police and the DEA raided several warehouse operations that were allegedly growing marijuana destined for out-of-state. Neighbors Nebraska and Oklahoma are suing to have the U.S. Supreme Court declare Colorado's recreational pot market unconstitutional, claiming marijuana is crossing their borders. It's too early to say if other problems are taking root. Colorado is just now starting to collect and analyze data on pot's impact on the state. I do worry about if we are irreparably harming Colorado, and it's, it's something that will take years to, to suss out. This baby-faced 31-year-old, Andrew Friedman, is Colorado's marijuana czar. He's a Harvard law grad, hand-picked by Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper to oversee the rollout of legalized recreational pot. There is no roadmap. I mean, you guys are racing ahead at, you know, a thousand miles an hour, and you're trying to work this out on the fly. How do you do that? It's an unbelievable challenge. Within one year, we wanted to get our culture up to speed. And, uh, what is, in, what is uh, the right amount to imbibe or to smoke and drive? Uh, what's appropriate around kids? What's appropriate in public? Society had never weighed in on these things before. Okay. Anything else on caregivers? Black market, gray market, where we're going on it. He regularly calls together the department heads of revenue, health, education, all the state agencies involved with marijuana, trying to balance the demands of the people with public safety and the law. It's legal here, Mm -hmm. but outside of Colorado, it's still illegal. It's a federally illegal drug. Mm -hmm. How do you square those two? Uh, Well, it is a round peg in a a square hole. It takes everybody being creative in ways they haven't been creative before and and knowing that at any time the federal government could come and shut us down and tell us that what we're doing is illegal in their eyes. Mm. You still think that's possible? Sure. It's completely possible that in a few years somebody comes around and says, a new president says, we are not okay with you doing this. They know they're under a microscope. That's why Colorado was quick to act when it bit into trouble with edibles, marijuana candies, cookies, and other infused foods. Just three months into legalization, a 19-year-old college student visiting Denver leapt to his death from a hotel balcony after eating a pot-laced cookie. The coroner's report noted marijuana intoxication as a significant contributing factor. I think one of the things we didn't see coming was that um, people were going to overdose on edibles. And we're not going to try to hide that problem. New rules and regulations came out faster than I think you ever see state government do something. New rules placed immediate limits on the amount of THC, marijuana's major psychoactive ingredient, allowed in edibles, and required new labeling detailing the potency of each serving. But the biggest cloud over the industry is banking. As long as the federal government continues to count pot proceeds as illegal drug money, most banks won't touch it. So Colorado's billion-dollar marijuana industry is conducted almost entirely in cash. That's why Meg Sanders keeps a two-ton safe. So your payroll was in cash? Payroll, taxes, taxes, licensing fees, um, Home Depot, 
vendors, you name it, our electrician. All Absolutely. in cash. Absolutely. From a public safety standpoint, it's definitely um, the number one issue that this industry faces. Do you want to guarantee that a, a fledgling industry becomes corrupt and, and you know, becomes populated with gang activity, make it all cash, right? That's as old as Al Capone, right? Cash creates corruption. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper says a partial solution might be a new state-chartered cannabis credit union. He's urging the federal government to approve it. Still, despite the problems, Governor Hickenlooper says he's encouraged by the rollout of this green experiment Colorado voters wanted. In the beginning, you didn't think it was a good idea. No, I posed it. You know, and I posed it, I think even after the election, if I'd had a magic wand and I could wave the wand... I probably would have reversed it and, and had the initiative fail. But now I look at it, and I'm, I'm not so sure I'd do that, even if I had such a wand. I mean, I think we've made a lot of progress, and, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think we might actually create a system that, that can work. All right, I will have an eighth of that. Sure. Meg Sanders says marijuana is good for business. It's pretty groovy, dude. Yeah. And good for Colorado. Are you seeing a marijuana effect on the economy here? Absolutely. You can't find an empty warehouse in the city of Denver, really. I mean, you just can't. And then think of the ripple effect. I mean, we, we affect a ton of businesses, security, marketing, um, you know, web hosting. You na- we're a business just like anybody else. We have the same needs. Today, you can walk into a mindful dispensary and buy a joint like this for only $10. Business is good. Sanders is planning to expand. We're creating. We're saying, please trust us. We know what we can do this right. I do remember when this was rolled out, everyone thought that the sky was going to fall. It's still there. <laughs> it didn't fall. And business is thriving, and the customers are still coming through the door. So clearly, if I'm looking at my business and I'm looking at those around me, the consumer is saying, yeah, this works. Since our story first aired, at least three more lawsuits have been filed in federal court to stop Colorado's recreational sales. But the market continues to grow. The latest figures show consumers bought $43 million worth of recreational pot in March, a new monthly high. Meet Joel and Lisa Schneider of Bud and Breakfast at 60MinutesOvertime.com. Sponsored by Pfizer. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When Hurricane Sandy made its way towards the East Coast in the fall of 2012, residents knew it could be devastating. What they didn't expect was just how bad Sandy turned out to be. 117 deaths, and damage estimated at more than $60 billion, second only to Katrina. More than two and a half years later, Sandy victims have been hit by something else they didn't expect, the storm after the storm. As we first reported in March, many people say they have been cheated out of their insurance claims. Thousands of claims have still not been resolved, and there is evidence that many homeowners were victims of what appears to be wide-scale fraud where original damage reports were later changed to make it look like the damage wasn't as bad. Making matters worse, appeals to the federal agency in charge of all of this, FEMA, went nowhere. 
Hurricane Sandy damaged or destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes and rearranged neighborhoods. Long Beach, New York, was one of them. This was Bob Cable's house the next day, the yellow one, with a sand dune blocking his front door. The beaches decided that they didn't want to be there anymore, and they came to pay a visit, and that's what happened. And we got back to the house, and we were devastated. What was that like to walk into your house for the first time? Everything that you worked so hard in your life to get is now gone. But you had flood insurance? Mm-hmm. You'd paid for every month? Absolutely. Did you think you were okay? Sure. I mean, that's what you pay insurance for. The city condemned Cable's home, saying it was damaged beyond repair. The house had been knocked off its foundation. His insurance company, Wright Flood, sent an engineer to inspect the damage. Three weeks later, the Cables couldn't have been more surprised. I get the engineering report that there's no structural damage to the house. So I'm going like, what do you mean there's no structural damage? The house is not what it was before. The insurance company agreed to send someone back out to the house. Surprisingly, it was the same engineer, George Hernemar, who worked for a company called U.S. Forensic. I said, George, how could you write a report like that? He goes, it's not my report. I said, what do you mean it's not your report? He says, wait here. He goes to the trunk of his car, goes, picks up the report, and brings it into the house. He says, this is the report I wrote. Bob Cable got out his phone and took a picture of George's original report. It plainly said there was structural damage to the house. But this is the report the insurance company sent to Cable when they denied his claim. Quote, not structurally damaged. They said the damage was long-term, meaning it existed before Hurricane Sandy. The Cable's insurance company, Wright Flood, the largest provider of flood insurance in the country, paid him just $79,000 of his $250,000 policy. We had a mortgage on the house. I've had estimates of three, dollars $350,000 to rebuild the house. What am I going to do? Bob Cable's house was torn down after he sold it for a loss, and he believes it was because of a falsified engineering report. The photo Cable took was solid proof for many other Sandy victims who were struggling with similar situations. How many houses do you see that are empty? On this block, probably half of them. The Cables pleaded to a vice president at their insurance company and passed on their evidence. But the company denied full payment, arguing subsequent reports supported them. With frustration as high as the watermarks in their home, the Cables filed a lawsuit. That suit drew the attention of a Texas trial lawyer who had never been to Long Beach but got on his plane in a hurry. Steve Mostyn has won billions fighting insurance companies, and when he heard about Bob Cable's case, he says he had a gut feeling the Cable family wasn't alone. Sure enough, he says his Houston office is now flooded with paperwork from victims of the superstorm. There's been a systematic fraud on the policyholders who filed flood claims from Sandy. What's the fraud? The fraud is taking engineers' reports and changing them uh, from saying there was structural damage to saying there's no structural damage or giving the engineers a uh, form to fill out that already has the conclusion of no structural damage. Why would anyone do that? Save money. The biggest ticket item inside a claim for a flood claim is the structural damage. And so when they don't pay for structural damage, they uh, save hundreds of thousands of dollars on each claim. Of the thousands of cases lawyer Steve Mostyn says he's found, 
Electrician John Miro and his wife Gail's is the most revealing. Their house is in East Rockaway, New York. What was this street like in the days, the day after Sandy when he came? Oh, it was like six uh, foot high water in the street. Well, the day after was like Armageddon. It was uh, the Miro's house had to be torn down after the storm. Their insurance company paid them just eighty thousand dollars, and now they're buried in debt after rebuilding their home. I was like, how can you tell me that that this isn't that you can't cover this? That I'm not going to get the full amount of my insurance. I said, you never. I said, you got my payments every month. I said, now it's time for you to pay. And is what you're going to tell me? It was two years later that the Miros felt a second wave hit them, when the engineer who assessed their home after the storm called them out of the blue. The engineer sent his report in to the insurance company saying that the house was damaged due to flood. The structural damage was caused by the flood. And from what I understand, the insurance company changed it, changed his words without him knowing. This is Andrew Brom, the engineer who could no longer stay silent. Brom told us not only were changes made to his engineering reports, but he was asked to cover it up. He showed us the original report he'd written about the damage to John and Gail Miro's house. We assess in the conclusions hydrodynamic forces, hydrostatic forces, due to the flood caused the cracking and shifting throughout the foundation. So you're saying the flood caused this damage? Correct. And then in the revised or the altered report, it says settlement due to consolidation of soil caused the foundation wall to crack. That's not what I wrote. It's completely altered. Brahm inspected more than 180 homes after Sandy, working for a company called High Rise Engineering. After he discovered the changes made to the report he wrote about the Miro's home, he went back to check all the copies of his original reports against the final copies that the homeowners received. How many of those reports were doctored? At least 175 of them, or approximately 96 percent is the number that I calculated. 175 of your reports were doctored? Correct. They were altered. And the ones that weren't changed? The ones that weren't changed, interestingly, were ones where I recommended that no repairs are required. Brom says high-rise engineering pressured him to sign an affidavit saying he agreed with their final reports. He says he ignored the request and never did it. Do you think they were trying to cover up something? Now, knowing what I know, yes. What do you think was going on? They figured out that they altered all those reports and they wanted to hurry up and have, they called me Brom, mm -hmm. Brom get Brom to sign off on this quick. So if Brom wasn't thinking or Brom didn't care, he would just sign his name 200-something times and they were off the hook. And that wasn't happening with me. Insurance companies have argued the reason the engineering reports were changed was to allow for a peer review process, a standard practice in the insurance industry. Peer review, to me, would be amongst my peers of an equal licensing or education level and review a report and discuss it, but not peer review when I send my final report and it's changed without my knowledge. That's not peer review. In February, the offices of high-rise engineering were raided by the New York Attorney General's office, which is conducting a criminal investigation into high-rise as well as the insurance companies that hired them. High-rise, Wright Flood, and U.S. Forensic all declined our request for an interview. They have denied allegations of criminal activity, 
and all three say they are cooperating with the investigation. More than 2,000 Sandy victims have filed lawsuits in federal courts. You know, we thought originally it might be one engineer, mm-hmm. right? And then we find multiple engineers inside the same company. Mm-hmm. And as we dug into it, it's other engineering companies. Well, then you got to start looking for a different common denominator. And in this case, all of those companies are overseen by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. More than 5 million homeowners living in designated flood zones all around the country are required to buy flood insurance policies backed by FEMA and taxpayer money. Brad Kaiserman is the new head of FEMA's flood program. We spoke to him when he'd been on the job just three weeks. He'd already had to answer to allegations of fraud and criminal activity at the expense of some of Sandy's hardest-hit families. I'm not going to sit here and conceal the fact that it happened because in the last three weeks I've seen evidence of it. You say you've seen evidence of these fraudulent reports. Yes. You've seen evidence of what could be criminal activity by using unlicensed engineers. Yes, which is why I referred it to the inspector general. When did FEMA learn that there may be a problem here, that fraudulent reports may be used to deny claims? I think that there were signals, based on what I've seen, if you will, signals in late 2013, early 2014, that there were problems that our survivors were experiencing with engineering, with the claims process, with appeals. Um, but those were signals. And then I think those signals got louder, if you It was will. more than signals. This, mm-hmm. is, this is a letter to FEMA in the summer of 2013 that clearly says that the, the person conducting, doing the inspections here, wasn't a licensed engineer. Right. This is to FEMA. So, in, in the summer of 2013. So uh, you're right. This is dated August 19th, 2013. And, you know, I've seen this. The document sent to FEMA was an appeal from another family who felt badly cheated by their insurance company. In it, they provide proof that the engineer who inspected their home, working for the firm U.S. Forensic, was not licensed to work in New York. This upset me very much because this piece of information, had it been elevated in the agency... Uh, would have been very helpful in helping us help people earlier. Why wasn't it elevated in the agency? I mean, this, to me, is the type of thing you run to the boss with. This would be the type of thing that I would run to the boss with, and I need to find out why that didn't happen. But as far as you know, no one at FEMA ever said to the insurance companies, ever said to the engineering companies, keep the claims down. As far as I know, no one at FEMA has ever done that. But lawyers paid for by FEMA have gone after Sandy survivors in court, accusing them of fraud. Bob Cable, who took the photo of his altered engineering report, was accused in court of stealing the report done on his own home, which he denies. We have homeowners who went through the appeals process, and the attorneys who are being paid for by FEMA called them thieves, said they were trying to conduct fraud. I mean, those are your dogs at the end of the leash. Do you take any responsibility for that? Yes, I take responsibility for uh, the fact that when FEMA funds activities, the people who are getting paid by those funds need to behave in a professional, ethical manner. More than two and a half years after Sandy, neighborhoods still bear the scars of the storm. But settlement talks are now underway. FEMA's Brad Kaiserman and a team of attorneys have flown to Texas to negotiate with Steve Mostyn to settle more than 2,000 Sandy claims. These people are truck drivers, nurses, firefighters. They said they 
fought as much as they could, and they feel like FEMA just gutted them. They just gutted them. The fact that, they, that, they, that that's the experience they had with their insurance companies, their engineers, their adjusters in a FEMA-funded program, that's unacceptable. So we're going to make it right? I am, as you know, I'm doing everything I can in the midst of negotiations uh, to try to make that right. Let's face it, I don't have unlimited authority. I can't wave a magic wand and make all of this right for everyone. This past week, after four months on the job, Brad Kaiserman announced he is leaving his post at FEMA to work at the Red Cross. He told us he delivered on his promises to make it right for Sandy victims. But since our story first aired, only a handful of homeowners have received new settlement checks. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As recently as five years ago, you would have been forgiven for not knowing exactly who Bradley Cooper was, despite the fact that he'd been in roughly 20 movies in four television series. Today, you have no excuse. As we first reported in February, he had quite a year, winning a claim for two roles that couldn't be more different. One on stage, portraying a sensitive soul with a horrible affliction. He's up for best actor for that role at tonight's Tony Awards. And the other on film, as a stoic, solitary Navy SEAL in Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, which earned Cooper his third Academy Award nomination in as many years, something only 10 male actors have ever done before. It puts him on a list with names like Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Spencer Tracy, and Gregory Peck and announces his arrival not just as a major movie star, but as a committed, talented, and versatile actor. A friend of yours said, I think there's part of Bradley uh, that doesn't quite believe this has happened to him. Well, believe it in as much as I believe I'm sitting here talking to you. But but the thrill's still there. Don't get me wrong. The thrill is still massive. You know, I mean, I I wake up very happy every day, I'll tell you that. Mr. Cooper, Mr. Cooper. Where Bradley Cooper was waking up was much more problematic. For weeks, he parachuted into L.A. for 24-hour binges of the obligatory pre-Oscar hoopla, this year for American Sniper, which we'll get to later. The rest of the week, he woke up 2,700 miles away in New York. That's him with a backpack, the toast of Broadway, locked into one, sometimes two performances a day of The Elephant Man. You know, I always sort of talk about, to myself at least, or to my friends, about wanting to just keep life very simple. I've found it most simple here in New York. You know, it's basically, I have, an, in a way, a nine-to-five job. You know, I, I do eight shows a week. I live in New York City. And I get to walk everywhere and, you know, just be one of the people of the city, and it's actually wonderful. You can move around all right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nobody with me. I just came here. You know, I, I do everything on my own, so it's uh, it's great. No paparazzi? People don't bug no, you? No, they get they get me on the way from, from where I live to the to the subway station, but for some reason they don't want to spend the 250 and ride the subway with me. <laughs> so I lose them in the subway. The Elephant Man has been a huge success, smashing attendance records and winning Cooper excellent reviews from Broadway's toughest critics for a role that's been part of his consciousness for decades. At age 12, he decided he wanted to be an actor after watching the movie version. It tells the story of John Merrick, a horribly deformed British man with a saintly soul who's rescued from a 19th century freak show and given sanctuary at a London hospital. 28 years later, Cooper has produced, 
cast and arrange the financing for the current Broadway production. You play John Merrick yeah. without any makeup, without any prosthesis. Mm-hmm. Just you, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. And you have to convince the audience that you're him. Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, by believing I'm him. That's how I do it. If I'm acting like I'm him or I don't quite make that leap of faith, there's absolutely no way you're going to believe it. I had to do a tremendous amount of work to get to a place where I do believe I'm him. Part of the work was 20 years of research and part of it a performance unlike he's ever given. The transformation from Cooper to Merrick is shared by the audience in one of the early scenes. As the doctor is speaking to the pathological society, which actually is the audience of the play, and you see an actual photograph of Joseph Merrick, he is then describing all of his afflictions. From the upper jaw, there projected another mass of bone. And then I then interpret each one in a physical manner. The right hand was large and clumsy, a fin or paddle rather than a hand. Almost mimicry, almost like a mime. To add a further burden to his trouble, the wretched man, when a boy, developed hip disease, which left him permanently lame, so that he could only walk with a stick. And once he's finished with that presentation, I'm fully physically transformed, but the soul hasn't been injected yet. He brings the cane over, steps away, and then says, please. Please. And that's the first time you hear Merrick alive. That is the moment where the transformation occurs. And if I don't make that leap at that moment, the rest of the play is not going to work. But it has through 111 performances, each one ending with a standing ovation and hundreds of people outside the stage door behind police barricades waiting for Cooper's autograph or a picture Bradley, look this way quickly, please. or a chance to touch someone people magazine had once declared the sexiest man alive oh my god Bradley hey. hi but it's a moniker that belies his intelligence and talents he's an excellent cook speaks fluent French and after graduating with honors from Georgetown University with a major in English he borrowed $70,000 to get a master's degree from the actor's studio. How you doing, Mr. De Niro? My name is Bradley Cooper. Uh, my question is regarding awakenings. You need a light? But Bradley Cooper was never a struggling young actor. He was making out with Carrie Bradshaw on Sex in the City while he was still at grad school. A year later, he had a TV series, Alias, alongside Jennifer Garner, and promptly paid off that college loan. But he was not an overnight sensation either. You may remember him as the obnoxious fiancé who made a big hit in The Wedding Crashers. Big tree fall hard, right? How many fingers I got up? Come on, Pepe, how many fingers I got up? Come on, you know I drive great when I'm drunk. But it took him four more years and a road trip to Vegas for a bachelor party to make him a movie star. The Hangover grossed nearly a half a billion dollars worldwide. We lost Doug. What are you saying, Phil? We're getting married in five hours. Yeah. That's not going to happen. 
really things started to change, I guess, with Hangover. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was huge. Massive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive movie. Yeah. Anytime you're part of a movie that makes that much money in the box office, it's going to provide opportunities for other studios to take chances with you, just on a very mathematical level. That is the way it works. I mean, everybody has a number next to them about what their value is. And when you're casting a movie, any producer will tell you every actor has a certain amount of currency that uh, an investor will allow them to make so that you can get your money, your, your movie made. You had a, a perfectly good career. You would play generally either leading men or, or main supporting actors. And nobody during that time said, you know, Bradley Cooper's really a great actor. And now you've got three Academy Award nominations. How did that happen? Opportunity. People believing in me. I mean, people that have power willing to take a chance. That, that's everything. You know, you got to walk through the door and show them why you should be in the room. But, you know, the door's got to, you know, be open for you to walk through it. And one of those opportunities was Silver Linings Playbook. Absolutely. In this quirky romantic comedy, Cooper played a bipolar teacher who is discharged from a psych ward intent on reconciling with his ex-wife, only to meet Jennifer Lawrence, who's just as mixed up as he is. I was on Xanax and Effexor, but I agree it wasn't as sharp, so I stopped. You ever take Klonopin? Klonopin, yeah. Right? Jesus. Like, is it what? It landed Cooper his first Oscar nomination. I'm Federal Agent Richard DeMasso. The next year, he was nominated again in a supporting role for his portrayal of whacked-out FBI agent Richie DeMasso in American Hustle. I have a warrant for... I'm sorry, do I have the wrong office? This 701? Both films were written and directed by David O. Russell, the first to realize Cooper's potential. Why do you think he cast you? You know, I think that he saw something that he believed in. I remember him saying to me, you know, I've only seen you in first and second gear, and I think you've got about six gears, so I want to go to those gears. I just want to get the bad guys, but if I can't see him, I can't shoot him. Once again, in American Sniper, Cooper has turned in a performance that is vastly different than anything he has ever done. In a film, The New Yorker called a subdued celebration of a warrior's skill and a sorrowful lament over his alienation in misery. I'm coming home. It has generated heated debate about the morality of the war in Iraq and nearly $300 million at the box office. <laughs> Do you think this is a political movie? You know, my reaction is like, no, but then we can have a discussion about everything's political. Do you know what I mean? But no, I know I never saw that. I saw that as telling a personal story. It's the story of Chris Kyle, a Navy SEAL sniper who survived four tours in Iraq with 160 confirmed kills, protecting the backs of U.S. Marines in places like Fallujah and Sadr City. And it's about the toll it took on him and his family. Most challenging role you've ever had? Oh, without question. Uh, and for nothing else other than, Steve, that he was a real human being. It's like you just work hard, work hard, work hard, do all the work, do all, and then hopefully you just pray that it just starts to happen so that when you walk on that set that first day, he's there. To make it happen, Cooper decided he needed to put on 40 pounds of muscle to capture Kyle's enormous physical presence and calm demeanor. For three months, he ate 6,000 calories every day and spent eight hours working out and perfecting Kyle's Texas accent. The weekends were spent on sniper training with former seals. What were you trying to convey with this movie? I mean, what did you hope to convey? If we were able to hit the bullseye, one was vets, men and women in the service who watch the movie feel like they see their story up there or they can relate to it. Number two 
would be people, the 99% of the population that has nothing, knows nothing about what military men in service go through or their families would see it in a different light and say, oh, wow, I had no idea. Hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. And she's carrying something. Yeah, she's got a grenade. She's got an RKG, Russian grenade. She's saying to the kid, you got eyes on this? Can you confirm? Negative. You know the ROV. Your call. I'm on the gun. I've shot live ammo through it, and I've seen what it does. I know that I can take them out if I want to. But my whole stomach, Steve, turned like, like that the minute I saw them through the crosshairs. Even though it was an empty gun, there are no bullets. You know, they're actors. It's not a real Russian grenade. But because of the work that I had done, it was enough so that my body physically changed. So those little things key you into what maybe having a glimpse of what uh, any soldier has to go through. Cooper gives much of the credit to director Clint Eastwood, who allowed him to observe and participate in every aspect of the production. And in Cooper, Eastwood sees a little bit of himself. He's probably as professional as any actor his age I've ever met. I, I never caught him acting. And that's, that's a compliment. He's going to be a great director one of these days when he gets tired of acting, which we hope is not too soon. <laughs> Bradley Cooper just turned 40, so there are lots of things he plans to do, including eventually having a family when he has the time and all the right things fall into place. He grew up in a tight Irish-Italian clan in Philadelphia, which he still considers home. We spent an afternoon there with his entourage, which consisted of his dog Charlotte, his cousin Colin Campano, and his mother Gloria. When the Elephant Man ended its run on a Saturday night in February, they had just enough time to get to L.A. for the Oscars on Sunday. So you you are going as a date? Oh, yeah. This is like the third third year in a row. I know. It's, I love it. it. No, oh. I love it. When my son... Are you kidding? This is his that third time. <laughs> And I think this year he'll do it. I really do. And if he doesn't... <laughs> As we now know, Bradley Cooper did not win the Oscar for his role in American Sniper. We'll see what happens tonight at the Tony Awards, where he's up for Best Actor for his role in The Elephant Man. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.